Welcome to Appointed. Well, welcome to another episode of Appointed. Today, I am so pleased to be joined by the amazing, brilliant, um, oh, I don't know where to start, President Caton. Like, I've been an admirer of yours. You've been an incredible leader and have uh, demonstrated just how bright the future is, uh, not just for Indigenous women, Métis women, and youth, but also for all of us, because you're leading in so many ways. I'm joined today by President Cassidy Caron, a Métis woman with roots in historic Métis communities of Batoche in St. Louis, Saskatchewan, um, previously served as provincial elected representative of the Métis Nation of British Columbia, currently the national president, and has done incredible work with first with young people. She is still a young person in my mind. Of course, everybody's young compared to me these days, um, but also has worked closely with cabinet ministers at uh, provincial, federal levels uh, with senior officials. Uh, we know her as also an international leader in terms of Indigenous uh, movements and governance in action at the UN. I've seen you in action here on international as well as national, regional and local stages. And, you know, you have um, a strong history of not just advocacy, but bringing together disparate communities, bringing together and encouraging people to collaborate in ways uh, that benefit all. And so I want to thank you very, very much for joining us today. And um, I'm here on the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek on the shores of the Kitchissippi. I think you joined me from another territory, but I'll also allow you to introduce yourself in the way that you would like to. Thank you so much for all of those kind words, Senator. Uh, yeah, Tanse Kiwa. My name is Cassidy Karen, President of the Métis National Council. Uh, I'm calling today from Williams Treaty Territory up in Huntsville, Ontario, which is uh, the, where I now call home um, as a visitor here on these lands uh, when I'm not in Ottawa or traveling all across the Métis Nation homeland for my job as President of the Métis National Council. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and especially taking time out on what's supposed to be a break for you. So um, thank you for this. Federal government recently, as you know, the three and the the idea is, at least as we're being told as a non-Indigenous senator, I'm being told that this will allow the recognition of uh, Métis governments, particularly in Alberta, Ontario and Saskatchewan. I'm curious as to what this bill means to you and Perhaps more importantly, at least I'm very interested in well, what self-governance means and whether this bill will actually achieve that from your perspective. Sure. So, you know, it's it's a step towards achieving self-government. It's a step towards achieving self-governance, self-determination, those inherent rights um, that the Métis people are afforded under Section 35 of Canada's Constitution. Um, we've been working towards uh, the recognition and the realization of self-government, self-governance for generations. It is what our ancestors have fought for for uh, many, many years, starting all the way back, you know, in, in uh, 1885 uh, and even before that with the resistances that were led by Louis Riel, fighting for what is right for the future of the Métis Nation. Um, so this self-government legislation, Bill C-53, has really been 
a longstanding goal of our Métis governments, particularly, as you say, um, this bill specifically only affects those in um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario. So the Métis Nation of Alberta, the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, and the Métis Nation of Ontario. And what this legislation is, um, it's similar to many of the other pieces of self-government and treaty implementation legislation that Parliament has passed in relation to other Indigenous peoples really since 1975. And um, this bill is a legislative anchor for the Métis Nation to continue to move us forward to realizing those dreams and those visions of our ancestors. It really is reconciliation in action. Uh, what, this, what this bill does it is... It moves us towards ending generations of denial of Métis self-government. Um, it ensures that the many false starts of uh, the Métis that we've had in trying to, to achieve self-government um, will not be repeated. There's been many, many attempts at moving this forward uh, really since uh, you know the constitutional conferences and unpacking what Section 35 is for Métis people. Like I say, it's that legislative anchor for our nation-to-nation, government-to-government relationship with Canada for generations to come. It advances those constitutional promises that were made to the Métis in Section 35 of the Constitution Act. And it's another one of those practical steps towards implementing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So what this does is it it anchors those self-government agreements that these three Métis governments have signed and have negotiated with Canada. It recognizes that our three Métis governments have lawmaking powers and authority over citizenship, elections, governance operations, as well as Métis Child and Family Services. And it commits Canada and our Métis governments to ongoing negotiations towards self-government treaties um, within the next number of years. Um, so it's, it's a step towards having all of this realized and all of this achieved. It's like I, I like to keep saying it's that legislative anchor that gets us to this one point in our history and allows us to continue to move forward without looking back. Right. Well, I like I like the analogy of anchor. I also think I hope it's a propeller that it propels <laughs> us into the next actions. And another piece of legislation with which I'm directly involved, uh, along with Leah Gazan, member of parliament for in Treaty One territory in uh, Manitoba, is Bill S two thirty three, and in the House of Commons at C two two three. And this is designed to look at developing a framework for a guaranteed livable income. The relevance from my perspective to your constituency, if you will, is that the, the most recent census from Statistics Canada shows that 10.5% of the Métis population live below the poverty line in Canada. And I actually think that's low because if we're looking at folks living in urban uh, communities who may not necessarily be being counted in the same way, uh, may get counted as First Nations or in a more mm -hmm. generic pan-Indigenous way, we know the numbers are far greater than that. And so I'm curious as to how you see this contributing to 
self-governance to sovereignty as well as uh, you know Métis independence, if you will, because providing these kinds of supports and removing the the requirements for people to stay in communities looking for non-existent jobs and instead freeing up folks to be entrepreneurial. I mean, some of the elders have talked to me about, you know, encouraging youth to learn culture, language, go out on the land, as well as be able to develop things like ecotourism or other entrepreneurial endeavors. And so I'm curious as to what kinds of things you see this could assist. And also, of course, to know if there are pitfalls or there are areas we should be concerned about, as this is framework legislation only, but what are some of the issues we should be thinking about as we move forward? Sure. So I guess the first part that I want to touch on um, is, is what you mentioned there with the statistics. We have had a number of challenges really understanding the needs of the Métis population based solely on Statistics Canada's um, numbers based on the census. Uh, we've taken steps in the last number of years to try to refine the questions um, of, you know, self-identification of, of Métis people and, and really trying to narrow that down to really understand, are these numbers specifically talking about Métis people and, and real Métis people, not just self-identifying um, people who decide that, uh, you know, they may have had an ever so great, great grandmother who was, um, you know, Cree and, and is not actually a Métis person recognized through our citizenship. We've had a number of challenges with that. So in the 2016 census specifically, we saw an increase of Métis people uh, identifying in that census hugely. And what that has done is actually it's it's shrunken the socioeconomic gaps according to Statistics Canada, where it says that our people are actually doing far better than they actually are. Uh, it shows that you know the the socioeconomic gaps are shrinking when we know in reality those socioeconomic gaps are staying the same or or growing between Métis populations and non-Métis populations. Um, we know that our people are living below the poverty line. We know that our people are, are struggling to access equitable health care. Um, but when non-Métis people are identifying as Métis and then they're showing off as, as doing better in Canada census, it shrinks those gaps. So we tend to not rely so heavily on Statistics Canada data. What we do is we try to do this research within our own Métis governments using our citizenship registries, knowing you know, how to actually access our populations, how to survey our populations uh, in better ways and more meaningful ways. So that's one of those things that I wanted to talk about first and foremost. So like you say, you know, that 10.5% of the Métis population below the poverty line, um, you know, we are better off to do that research on our own and find out if, if that number is true or not. You know, thinking about the ways that self-government can address poverty issues in Métis communities um, across the Métis Nation homeland. Really, when I think about this, I think about Otapamisuak. And Otapamisuak is a Cree word. It's a Cree term that Cree Nation used to call Métis people. It's translated into those who own themselves or they are their own boss. And I, I love that description of Métis people. That's what our relatives, our kin used to call us because they truly saw that the Métis nation, the Métis people owned themselves. 
we were also the first free traders of the plains. We were very entrepreneurial. We were there to support, you know, the the fur trade and and make um, a living and subsistence off of whatever it is that we could do. Um, but of course, throughout history, there's been a number of promises that have been made to Métis people, to the Métis nation, um, that have been uh, not kept. And because of that, uh, we see a lot of generational poverty. Ways to, to move ourselves out of this is to move towards self-governance, is to move towards designing and implementing programs and supports that are designed by and for Métis people. Our Métis governments know our Métis citizens' needs more than anybody else. They know, again, how to get out into the communities and how to support, where to support, when to support. All of these really critical um, ways of, of, of supporting the Métis nation, our Métis governments know how to do. So Métis self-government, uh, Métis self-governance really ensures that services are best designed and delivered for Métis citizens by their elected Métis governments. Um, again, those economic development opportunities that our communities always should have had um, based on, you know, the lands that were promised and, and stripped away through the fraudulent script system, um, those unfulfilled government promises. It's time that we start identifying what has happened in history and how to reverse that. That's really what reconciliation is, how to reverse those wrongs that have been done and set us off on a better foot towards uh, a, a brighter future. Pulling our people out of poverty is absolutely critical for the future of the Métis Nation to see our future generations thrive. And, uh, and again, it, it's within our nation that we have these solutions to move forward. Well, in fact, one of the, one of such solution that, <clears throat> excuse me, your, your body, the National Council and the, uh, the Métis Nation of Ontario were involved with was a housing project in Sault Ste. Marie. I saw, you know, recognizing an immediate response to um, the homelessness crisis for many of your citizens. And so, um, you know, th that to me is a perfect example of how you would use funding that would come. Do you have any ideas of how a guaranteed income might assist as well if that was made available to folks? And, you know, what are some of the ways that you would see it it working or um, the ways that it should be designed to meet the particular needs of Métis people? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Just going back to the mm -hmm. to the housing project um, that the Métis Nation of Ontario delivered, there are actually a number of Métis housing projects that are happening all across the Métis Nation homeland and are doing so, so well. Métis Nation of Alberta has a super successful housing program um, and uh, and it is all based off of, uh, you know, direct data that's collected by our Métis governments. So the, the housing census that was done by the Métis Nation of Ontario immediately turned into this program that's going to help our Métis citizens' um, immediate needs. Getting a roof over people's heads is number one in, in creating that stability and building that brighter future for Métis people. A guaranteed livable income, again, a really important step in addressing the levels of poverty among Métis citizens. I think one of the key considerations here is that the program needs to be designed and, and for us specifically administered by our Métis governments. Um, again, that respects our nation-to-nation, government-to-government relationship that we currently have, ensuring that our Métis governments have adequate, ongoing, sustainable funding to support their citizens is a really, really good step 
in starting to eliminate poverty. This is tied to a lot of the work that we're doing right now with the federal government. Um, back in 2017, the Métis Nation signed uh, the Canada Métis Nation Accord. Um, that established a, a permanent bilateral mechanism, which is a big mouthful of, of, of a, a, a term to say that you know we come together with Canada a number of times throughout the year to identify the priorities of the Métis Nation, to sit down, to work out what are the priorities that we want to address as the Métis Nation, what are the uh, priorities that Canada wants to address that we can support them. And then we put our teams to work throughout the year. We develop work plans, we do research, we pull together accords and sub-accords, which provide, you know, 10 plus year ongoing funding to our Métis Nation governments to be able to address these needs. The housing accord was one of them. We did an accord in post-secondary. We have an accord in early learning and childcare. We have an accord in economic development. What this does is it creates these um, pots of funding that go directly to our Métis governments. They are um, not then needed to, uh, our Métis governments then don't need to apply to these federal funds to then deliver to their citizens. It's just there for them to deliver these programs. And I think that that's something that we need to look at for the guaranteed livable um, basic income program is how, you know, how can we create this program for the Métis Nation, um, you know, carved out of the broader program so that our Métis governments can then deliver it specifically to our Métis citizens. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I just want to point out to all of our listeners and those who may be viewing on YouTube that there will be links in the program and the show notes for this to all of those accords to the census you're talking about and to your uh, website generally so that folks can go and get more information because it is an amazing resource full of uh, rich with all kinds of resources. And you've touched on some of this, but I'm curious as to um, many people listening will say, well, it's not just an income issue. And many of us agree with that, that income is one of the issues. Uh, but we do know that from some of the work that's being done, that's been done in Canada, as well as internationally, that providing the income is the first step to um, helping people lift themselves out of poverty or helping them rebound out of poverty if, you know, during things like the pandemic. I'm curious as to whether you can uh, talk about or whether you're comfortable talking about the the intersections between poverty and some of the other issues. And of course, an area that I've worked in for a long time is the impact as the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry uh, pointed out of the failure to address past trauma, the failure to uh, provide clean water, adequate housing, uh, health care, social services, and then income, and how th those are all linked to Indigenous women being more likely to be to go missing, be disappeared, killed, uh, as well as to be homeless and imprisoned. And so, you know, some of the ways that you would see an income initiative of the sort that we're talking would assist those other areas and what other supports would, you know, could be in place as well, because right now we're spending upwards of 200 dollars to $500,000 per year per woman, when I talk about women alone, to jail them in our federal prison. How could those resources be better spent in community? Yeah, absolutely. I, it's, you know, we have to look at all of this through a holistic lens. Uh, we have to, you know, again, go back throughout our history to understand, you know, how did we get to where we are today? 
you have to look at all of the different puzzle pieces that create the picture of what is happening today for Indigenous people broadly and then the Métis Nation specifically for us. Absolutely the work that we're doing right now. We've done some work into understanding, you know, the social determinants of Métis health and it, it's exactly all of those pieces that you're talking about. You know, it's income, it's housing, it's access to uh, water and and um, to put food on the table and, and how our families are doing that. Uh, climate change, you know, that's affecting how our families are accessing traditional foods and, you know, in today's economy with, with inflation, um, how climate change is affecting that. You know, we can't go out onto the land and access our trap lines because of the forest fires, and then we can't access the grocery stores because, because of inflation. All of these pieces are coming together to paint the picture of what is happening today. That also is linked, as you say, to poverty. That's linked to our people not being valued in the same way as other Canadians. Um, and that I think is what is the root of the tragedies that we're seeing with missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two SLGBT plus people, as well as the over-incarceration of, you know, Indigenous people broadly, Métis people specifically, even more so Métis women. Um, and, and how Métis women are uh, overrepresented in Canada's institutions. Um, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see. And when we think about the solutions that are needed to reverse these damages, to restore balance to our communities, it has to be looked at through that holistic lens. Of course, the um, basic uh, income uh, is one of those things. But then, you know, to be able to understand those holistic needs of, say, one Métis person in a community, you give them that basic income, then what? We need to still make sure that they have a roof over their head, that they have access to um, education, should that be what they want to do, that they have access to skills development, if that's what they choose to do, or that they have access to build their own um, business. Again, Métis people are inherently entrepreneurial. Uh, I know that there's more people out there that want to own their own businesses than want to go and work for someone else. And again, that comes back to Otapanisawak. They want to be their own boss. My family, for example, I come from a long line of, uh, of strong Métis women who own their own businesses because they want to work for themselves and not for anybody else. So how do we provide all of those supports, starting with that basic livable income, and then support this one individual? And of course, then that trickles out to many, many other individuals in our communities, families, to support them on this pathway to success. And for us, you know, the answer, once again, lies with our Métis governments. It lies with those governments who know the needs, who know all of the services that our people can access and can really support that person through our systems. Because it's really important also to know that um, there's a lot of Métis people who don't want to access specifically uh, federal programs, that they're hard to access, that there are barriers to accessing um, federal social service programs. And, you know, we have people within our Métis governments who are there to support one-on-one -on -one Métis people to get through the system, because that right there is something that we can do and we know how to provide that support.
That's an excellent point. I mean, one of the issues that we've been looking at in through with Finance Committee, interestingly enough, at the Senate, is the inequitable nature of the tax policies. Uh, you know that from, firsthand uh, from, you know, how Métis folks have been dealt with historically, but also the fact that many people don't benefit from the benefits that could be available, the cash benefits, um, because they're not registered. The, the idea of looking at some of the kinds of automatic tax return processes that benefit people, not as a penalizing, but as a, a way to ensure resources are rolled out. And we saw that during the pandemic that, uh, you know, the system we thought was set up to do that, the employment insurance failed miserably. And in fact, it was the tax system that was able to be used. You know, going forward, what are some of the things uh, you're you're an incredible leader? What are some of the um, the next steps you envision economically, socially, health wise that you mentioned the social determinants of health? And we know those are also uh, the determinants of everything from criminality to homelessness and, you know, the interlinkages that you mentioned. So what's your vision going forward and what are you hoping we'll see um, in this next year? We, we It looks like we probably have another year of this government. Uh, you have an accord. What are some of the things you're hoping we'll see um, play out? Well, first and foremost, the passing of Bill C-53. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I wanted to mention about C-53 is that it just is that enabling legislation for those three specific Métis governments to administer their own affairs, to be self-governing. It has nothing to do with um, lands or resources. Um, it really is just so that our Métis governments can be the ones who support our Métis citizens. So that's first and foremost, um, that would make a huge difference. Does that make a difference for the entire Métis Nation? Not yet. We still have Métis Nation British Columbia, who is um, the recognized Métis government of Métis people who live in British Columbia today. Um, one of the barriers that they are currently facing is the lack of recognition from the federal government as an, as an Indigenous governing body. So that right there, you know, that excludes them from being consulted, I think, specifically for um, the, uh, the framework development that's in, in your legislation. The problem with that is that there's no transparent method for selecting uh, who is granted IGB status, Indigenous Governing Body status. And so we're working with the government to really understand, you know, how and who decides that. Um, as the recognized Métis government of Métis people in British Columbia, they certainly should be granted Indigenous governing body status. So that's one of those things that we need to look at moving forward. For me at the Métis National Council, I'm always looking at the big picture. So as our Métis governments are moving towards self-government, I'm looking at the big picture. We're looking at the big picture at the National Council of how this works together in supporting Métis citizens generally. The purpose of the Métis National Council is to be that convening body for the Métis governments to come together to advance issues of collective importance. The biggest issue of collective importance is the prosperity of, of our future generations, to make sure that our future generations are thriving, to ensure that we're working together with Canada to make sure that their needs are being met in the ways that we know they need to be met. And so that's the work that I'm gonna be focused on in, in this next coming year, continuing to build that relationship with Canada 
through our Canada Métis Nation Accord, I think is one of the biggest pieces that we can continue to focus on is sitting down at the table with key ministers of those areas of importance, talking about this bigger picture and making sure that then Canada understands that it is our Métis governments who can support our Métis citizens. Because when our Métis governments are thriving, our Métis citizens are thriving, Canada's thriving because again, you know, we're Métis citizens, but we're also Canadian citizens. So if we can support Canada and supporting our citizens, that supports this country as a whole and moves us towards a brighter future. And so that's the work that I'll be focused on in the next uh, in the next year and and hopefully more years to come. I really do want to recognize though that there has been a lot of work and a lot of progress that has been made in the last number of years. Reconciliation, uh, of course, has been talked about for, for quite some time now. And I, I don't think that people understood how big of a journey reconciliation was going to be when, when it first started um, being talked about. I really don't think that there is an end uh, to this journey of reconciliation, um, but there's still a lot of work to do. However, it's really, really important to, to celebrate the successes that have come along with us throughout this journey. And, and I do want to recognize that a lot of work has been done. Um, a lot of work has been done through this government specifically, um, through the Senate. Senator, I want to thank you for all of the work that you're doing, especially in, um, you know, bringing to light the over-incarceration um, of, of Indigenous people and, and the work that's happening there. Um, people are really committed to making this country better. And, and I think the best way that we can continue to do that is by working together to do that. Well, thank you very much. I, I can't think of a better way to end off this podcast. Uh, the future is brighter just because we have leaders like you. And I want to thank you for the incredible leadership. And I too hope you're here for some time to come. And I, I see you mentoring so many other young people who are, are our future. They're already leading us forward and you're one of those. So thank you for your incredible leadership. Thank you for being your your vision and your um, the incredible way in which you keep pulling everybody together and encouraging folks to move forward at a time when, you know, some are encouraging us to, to look at the negative components. You're always incredibly positive moving us forward. And I look forward to uh, what the future holds for all of us, but especially with leaders like you. So thank you very much for joining us. And now I hope you get back to your vacation. Well-deserved. Thank you so much.